Joining us now, Congressman Kelly Armstrong. Congressman Armstrong, great to have you with us. I know we're going to be doing this every couple of weeks, kind of these uh, town halls, taking questions and whatnot. I need to start here because actually, as we're doing today's town hall, they are now doing a uh, resolution on the floor to expel North Dakota Representative Luke Simons over some sexual harassment allegations. Apparently, they were in uh, the lunchroom. He didn't have his masks on. One of his colleagues continually asked him to put his mask back on. Uh, I can't say it on TV what he said, but he said an expletive. You're not my mother. I just want to get your point of view on this situation at hand and also the fact that the House is holding this vote to expel uh, Representative Simons. Yeah, I think what happened in the lunchroom probably opened. I mean, I think there was some open records requests and things that happened about uh conduct that's gone back, I, I think, to like 2017, right? So I think a couple things. One, I don't think anybody excuses it, thinks it's the alleged conduct is okay, appropriate in any way, shape or form. Um, two, I think, you know, I, whether they're going to have arguments on both sides, but they're taking it seriously. It's a somber, a very somber thing. But at the end, I mean, the House each chamber in North Dakota, just like in Congress, controls its own rules. Um, they'd argue whether it's enough due process or not. I'm, I guess that's a fair criticism, but this is the due process for this type of for this type of thing. And uh, I, I mean, I know they're all on both sides. I know they're taking it carefully and seriously. So uh, it's transparent. I, it's, it, I know it's been on Facebook. I think you guys had it up. You can watch this. So like I said, it's I don't think anybody excuses the conduct. I don't think it was a one time incident, but um, they're doing what I think the body's supposed to do and debating it and de determining an outcome. I think the ultimate question somebody would have for you is based on what you've read and seen today, would you vote to expel him or not? This is a little tough for me, Chris, because, uh, you know, and this isn't so much, this is going to sound like a dodge, but it's not a dodge. Uh, I haven't read the files. Uh, so until I've read, and I've just, I mean, we're dealing with HR1 and the George Floyd Act and all of those things. Uh, I will never comment on something that severe based solely on the uh, media reports, even from people I trust. But I will say this, uh, I mean, the conduct's unacceptable and something has to be done. That's the determination for what what they're doing today. Yeah. Thank you, sir. Um, all right. So let's get to this. H.R. 1, you just mentioned, we're going to talk about some things that have happened in the House. A couple questions about it. Number one, for our audience watching, I mean, I've, I've tried to get in and study H.R. 1. It, it, it's a lot. So what's the most important thing our audience should know about it? And then secondly, which might even be more important is, does it have any chance of passing the Senate? Um, I hope not. Uh, it's a really bad bill. I think probably the most important thing for North Dakotans, and I'm actually proud of this, is we got them to an accept an amendment that the voter registration provisions in the bill only apply to states with voter registration. Uh, we use the same language from the Voter Registration Act in 1993. And you, uh, at that time, six states didn't have it. Well, right now, only one state doesn't have it, and that's North Dakota. And there are a lot of provisions outside of the terrible policy in the bill that would fit like a square peg in a round hole for North Dakota. So I'm happy we got that amendment accepted, but that's the extent of where I'm excited about this bill. This bill publicly finances elections. It allows for, uh, it, it, it guts state voter ID laws. It, it allows, I mean, it basically makes, allows for ballot, ballot harvesting at a, as a matter of course. And it's just generally, I mean, 
I think the North Dakota example is a perfect example. We do things our own way. We do it well. We've developed robust vote by mail counties. We've done really well with early voting in places. And this is just not the federal government's role, nor do I think anybody thinks, you know, federal tax dollars should go to financing elections. So I'm a little nervous when you say, I hope not, that it's not going to pass the Senate. Does it need 60 votes? Yes. Yeah, it does. So what's going on right now is after April 1st in the House, all votes have to all bills have to go to committee. So they're running through a lot of the same bills they ran through last time in Congress, Uh, whether it's H.R. 1, justice and policing. I'm sure we'll do gun control when we get back. uh, And those bills, because they, they can get them through before April 1st without having to go to a committee. So, yes, it needs 60 votes. What I always I mean, it's until it's until it's not there anymore. You always we always have to be vigilant. We always have to be paying attention. Here's a question from producer AJ. She says, uh, how is having no requirements for mail in voting, including ID or proof that you're alive? Okay. Well, it's not. And, you know, states have worked hard for uh, on their own voter ID laws. You know, North Dakota has been through this and it hasn't always been great. Right. We've been sued. We've worked into settlement agreements and all of those things. But at the end, I mean, you have to have some verification and validation. And more importantly, states are the places where that goes. I mean, states are in charge of elections. I've gotten I've gotten in a lot of trouble with some of my supporters for saying that about two months ago. And I'm going to continue to say it now. Um, Bev Moe says, hey, all deceased people can vote, question mark? Well, that's where you're dealing with voter rolls and some of the stuff put in there and um, and why this bill, I mean, this bill is, I, I mean, just it's really bad for election integrity. And it's a one to, listen, almost always when we try and do a one size fits all for, from Congress and put it through every state one way or the other, it never works well. And I don't think anybody thinks that we should have the federal government in charge of rural elections, urban elections, and all of those things. I mean, just a simple example, I'll give you in North Dakota, it requires 14 days early voting, requires certain time limits. Uh, Slope County has 714 people. Uh, where are they going to find the volunteers? Where are they going to do all of these things? They just It just doesn't work. And then you put yourself at risk of all of these different outside of even just the bad things in it. And yeah, and I just see a comment right there, ballot harvesting. It makes ballot harvesting a matter of course. And no elections will be over on election day if this passes. None. Nowhere so in the country. Can, can you do us a favor, Congressman, and just explain, because obviously we don't have ballot harvesting in North Dakota. What is ballot harvesting exactly and how would this bill have perpetuated it? Well, I mean, California is the easy example, right? Uh, you go out and you know what the vote count is and you have certain deadlines and you just go find votes. And you get people to fill it out. You continue to harvest ballots and you harvest ballots. And it's not it's not that the person isn't one person, one vote, but they go out and actively engage, get them. And it's not like uh, somebody helping their elderly mother fill one out or something like that. I mean, is it organized? Um, what I call the political industrial complex that's decided to do this. And it's and in certain places it carries on after Election Day. And that's just unacceptable. So let's talk about it from this perspective then. Yesterday, we finally heard this is the first time since the January 6th riots. Vice President Mike Pence wrote an op-ed about, hey, ele- election integrity is a national imperative. Um, a couple of things I want to get at with you. You're an attorney. When you look at what he wrote here, if you look at Senator Kramer's bill regarding Protect the Electoral College Act, they say within the language of the pressers, look, what, what, what was wrong with the situation was the fact that you had secretaries of states, judges, governors changing the state laws when that is the state legislature's job to create the election laws. So my ultimate question to you is, 
knowing that, why in the world do you believe the Supreme Court did not take on any of these cases? Well, I think, I mean, they're different in each one, right? Some of them, they didn't respond right away. Some of them, they weren't right. Some of them are probably constitutional in their states. Some of them are legislative. Some of it is guidance versus implementation. But I, I mean, that's, I mean, and, and that's what I think kind of gets lost in all of this. You know, I've read a lot of these things and each state's laws are different in how this, in how this works. Not to, I mean, not the least of which is how their state, either constitution or legislature treats uh, declared emergencies, which we didn't talk about enough in a lot of this, but some states didn't do it early enough. Some states didn't, uh, I, I mean, in some of the remedies that were asked for were um, outrageous and some of them just didn't have standing to bring the case they brought. So, uh, and it wasn't just the US Supreme Court, by the way. I mean, there were, there were, state, there were state Supreme Courts that acted. But elections should be the elections should be the purvey of the state legislatures, and the more we can do for that, the better we are. Uh, another question here: Wasn't there a group in Minneapolis paying people for their votes? I don't know. I, okay. I I don't know that answer. I know there have been accusations of that in past congressional elections, primary elections, actually, um, not even dealing with our side of the aisle. But whether those yes. have been verified or not. Uh, you mentioned the name of George Floyd. The case starts on Monday in Minneapolis. I guess what I want to ask you about specifically is, 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 as far as I know, there's a bill coming down the pipeline in the House looking to defund the police. Is that true? And if so, when is this going to happen? Yeah, it's the same bill that they passed last Congress. We actually passed it late on the floor last night. And uh, uh, it's, uh, you know, this is one of the places where I get a little frustrated because this is actually something that is, uh, I mean, criminal justice reform is something I care deeply about. Um, and I don't think it should be a partisan issue. And actually, there are people on both sides of the aisle that have worked on very good issues with this. But obviously, this gets rid of qualified immunity. It puts I mean, law enforcement is essentially a local function, right? Well over 95 percent of all the law enforcement we deliver as a country is de delivered at a state and local level. And when you start federalizing a lot of those things, uh, again, I mean, what they think works well in downtown Minneapolis needs to work well in North Dakota on a rural highway when you're measuring backup in hours and not minutes. And it is, uh, it's unfortunate that it had to turn into this uh, partisan process, both last Congress again and this Congress. So, I mean, you look what's happening in Minneapolis, it's pretty clear that now they're trying to raise more money to get more police. And then I saw this report today where um, this is police, but it's also, I think, going through a little bit through Congress, but a request for a 60-day extension of the Guard. My question to you specifically is, there was a, you guys canceled your session today because you thought there was going to be another ride at the U.S. Capitol. As far as I know, that has not happened. And yet now they're making a request for another 60 days of the guard to be at the Capitol. What what do we as Americans not know that they're making these kind of requests and basically making D.C. like a military zone? Yeah. And it needs to come down as soon as possible. And I want to be absolutely clear about that. When you see the Statue of Freedom through razor, razor wire, that should make everybody just unbelievably sad. But I think there's two things. One, if you are asking law enforcement how to harden something um, and how to protect it, fences work, which is why we have interesting conversations about the border and securities and barricades and those types of things work. And so I don't necessarily begrudge the Capitol Police. I mean, we had obviously a once, hopefully once and forever event on January 6th, but it's our job as members of Congress to say, listen, 
if we need to increase security, if we need to do some things, we should do that. But any of those decisions will absolutely not involve permanent barriers and razor wire. And I just, I, I deeply, deeply believe that. And then the other thing, and I actually question the acting chief of police of the Capitol on this, is they talk about when it's no longer needed, it'll come down. But if we're talking about unspecified online chatter or unspecified online threats, well, those existed before January 6th and they're gonna exist every single day. So I get when they when they give us an answer that they're trying to assure us, I actually get more concerned, not less, because they don't give us time certain. They don't give us those things. And it's not. And it is absolutely unacceptable to keep this up any longer than absolutely like specifically and definitively necessary. Absolutely stunning. Um, I saw Kevin McCarthy, the House Minority Leader, say there's a bill also coming that could impact people's gun rights. What do you know about that? Yeah, well, first of all, Sheila Jackson Lee introduced a bill earlier this Congress. Uh, as far as I'm aware, it has no other co-sponsors right now, which is good because it is unbelievably, well, it's unconstitutional and really draconian. But you're going to see, I, I mean, you could see assault weapons bans, magazine, magazine capacity bans, those types of things. You're obviously going to see more of the background checks. I would have no doubt they're going to, I mean, their bill last time nationalized red flag laws. I'm assuming they're gonna run this the same way. I'm no longer on judiciary, but it's gonna be the same bill they ran last Congress because then they'll get it through without a, without a committee vote. And it's a terrible bill. We absolutely opposed it last time. We'll continue to oppose it. Um, outside of all the other really bad provisions in there, it is clear that they have no idea about gun ownership in, real, in rural America. <laughs> all right, we need to talk about the surge of the Southern border, sir. I'm sure you've seen the story of what happened in Brownsville, Texas. Um, people coming across the border, 108 immigrants that tested positive for COVID. And what Brownsville, Texas is saying is, hey, look, we've got no authority to tell these people where they can and cannot go within the United States. So now these people that test COVID positive are jumping on buses and going to North Carolina, New Jersey, wherever it may be. How in the world is this allowed to happen? And also within this article, People in brands will say, look, I've got no authority to ask these people to show me if they've tested positive or not for COVID. Yeah, outside of all of the other uh, problems with immigration, this is a serious, serious issue, particularly when we're, I mean, when we have, uh, you know, members of the administration talking about whether they're going to test people before they get on domestic air travel. We've continued to keep Congress shut down and not allowed to have meetings in our offices with our constituents and the people we need to meet with and want to meet with, but we're going to allow free flow of uh, <laughs> immigration, both legal and illegal at the border without putting in the same metrics in place. Outside of all the other bad problems with immigration and how uh, it appears that the Biden administration is going to approach it. This is, a, I mean, this is a public health issue and I don't understand yes. why, why they wouldn't at least treat it as seriously for uh, immig immigrants as they do for their own citizens. I mean, how, how do you explain that? I, I don't know. I, I mean, it's the same thing. Like we, we just continue to stop building fence and border wall because they don't work. At the same time, we erected a wall and a fence and razor wire around the whole Capitol building. I mean, it's it's unbelievably frustrating to have these conversations. And you know why they did it, Chris? Because walls work. Fences work. I come in and out of work here every single day. It is much, it is significantly more protected in the Capitol than it would be without the fence. And I don't know how you can say that with a straight face and then say they don't work on the southern border. So I'm going to give you one more stat here and then ask you some questions about this. Also, it's being reported by Axios that in the fiscal year 2021, we're looking at a hundred 
and 17,000 unaccompanied immigrant children crossing our border. You were on the Judiciary Committee in, you know, focused on immigration in the last session. If you can share with people, because I'm assuming you know this, that the impact that and kind of what goes on south of the border where you have families really in Central America, I mean, essentially selling their kids to these coyotes, what coyotes are doing to these unaccompanied kids. I mean, it is a very sad and dangerous situation. Yeah, my colleague Chip Roy, who is down, it is down there, is one of the best guys to look at if you if you care a lot about this issue, follow his stuff. But I think that's one thing that people don't recognize: uh, the cartels will make money however they make money. If it's moving people, they'll do it. If it's moving drugs, they'll do it. And they're not giving COVID tests, and they're not ensuring kids are being taken care of, and they're not doing any of these things. And then they get here, and we have to deal with them. And now, granted, because we have a different president in place now, we talk about it differently, but a lot of what is going down on there, I mean, it's the same thing. Our Border Patrol agents, I mean, these are real rural, huge stretches of place, and they're not set up to take care of kids and with whatever health problems they have as simple as dehydration to, I mean, sexual assault. I mean, these things happen. This is not a safe um, place to be and not a safe place to do it. And by projecting that we are doing these things, we are inviting people either implicitly or explicitly to, to ramp up trying to get into this country. And it's not healthy. It's not good for our immigration policy. It's not good for our country, but it's not good for a lot of them either. So why is the Biden administration allowing it to happen? I mean, like you just said, no matter what's going on at the border, you're you're impacting young kids' lives forever. Why are they allowing this to go on and make it sound like, hey, we're we're open for business here in the U.S.? I don't know, but that is essentially what they're saying, and that is the message. That even if and if they don't mean it, they should stop it because that's the message that's being portrayed. And I mean, we need. I mean, our immigration system needs absolute overhaul. We need to solve some of these problems. I mean, at a very local level, we have H2A and farm ag, ag labor visa issues that are important in North Dakota, but we also have to figure out a way how we disincentivize and make sure that they're coming through the legal process and not bringing these, these large, large groups of um, illegal immigrants. I mean, I, I know we don't undocumented alien if that sounds better, but they're crossing the border. And if they've done it before, it's a felony. Um, I used to do this for a living, but also more importantly, we're just creating health hazards for even the people that are coming here. Well, that's what I understand why the Republicans don't do a better job of saying, look, I know that most Republicans want to put America first. And yet, folks, we are impacting young kids' lives forever if they even make it across the border with these coyotes it seems like a humanitarian issue to me and yet that that conversation i don't feel is being communicated very effectively you want to comment on that yeah well i think there's a couple things right i mean i i served i we we used to get this criticism a lot two years ago and i would always just say well we do it every single chance we get in the committees uh some of it is how the national media covers it some of it is how things get spin and then other i mean things are i think a little bit to that regard but also i mean just the timing of this is a little suspect in that it's not like our economy is rocking and rolling right now i think we i mean effectively we're probably closer to 10 percent, 9 percent national unemployment i mean this is the wrong policy at any point in time but it really is the wrong policy now yeah all right let's move on to energy because you are on the energy and commerce committee i want to uh, kind of start big picture and then we'll work our way down but this is a couple of comments that stunned me recently. I want to get your take specifically on what could this mean for the Bakken. Chevron says, hey, we're not going to be an oil first company in 2040. 
the BP CEO thinks that oil demand peaked in 2019 and plans to slash its oil and gas production by 40 percent by 2030. I read this and go, are they just going to leave leave it in the ground? What say you about how this could impact the Bakken? Well, I, I don't think it. I think it. I mean, it sounds really weird, but it might actually help the Bakken because those companies aren't the ones doing business here. Uh, I mean, we talk about big oil, and it's something that people like to beat up on, but we don't have big oil in North Dakota. In fact, we have a lot of small companies that come up here and do really good work, whether it's Whiting, Oasis, Continental, even EOG, EOG, uh, and those types of things. But I, I, I take a little offense a little times with what I refer to as the big five. You know, they talked, uh, there was an article in Wall Street Journal the other day talking about they would possibly support a gar carbon tax. Well, anywhere from over 80% of their oil is produced offshore and not in the United States. So if they're serious about talking about a carbon tax, I hope they're talking about worldwide production and not just their US production. Because what I don't want to happen with this, with our industry, the same thing that I think happens with a lot of other industries is we export our guilt. We can tell our shareholders we're doing well because we, we supported a carbon tax in the United States, but 80% of our oil is produced somewhere other than the United States. But uh, the companies, and, and that often is a difference in the industry. There's a difference between onshore shale guys and big international offshore guys. And those big international offshore guys have plenty of support from a lot of people. I'm going to protect the, the North Dakota shale guys as much as I can. Um, speaking about North Dakota, I also want to ask you this. We had the vice president of ag affairs for the NDSU extension, Dr. Greg Lardia, last night. I asked, I asked him, hey, we all know farmers use a lot of fossil fuels to produce their, their food. Um, how do you feel about the idea of the American Petroleum Institute potentially back in a carbon tax? Uh, here's what he had to say. Sir. Well, I think there's actually going to create some opportunities, some real opportunities for ag producers, Chris, because agriculture is one of the few industries, even though we use fossil fuels for a lot of our field work and so on, we're really capturing a lot of carbon when you look at uh, what our plants, growing plants and our grazing management systems are able to do on native rangelands. Those sort of things are going to be a real plus for our producers to be able to compete effectively in what I would describe as kind of this new carbon market. You know, they're going to they're going to have opportunities to uh, utilize some of these soil health practices and grazing management practices to actually uh, com better compete, I think, in that carbon market. So, uh, so it, there's definitely going to be opportunity there. Your reaction, sir? Two things. One, the president and the administration had an entire climate day uh, a couple of weeks ago now. They didn't mention biofuels once, not once. It's not, and I think we need to recognize that there are a lot of people on the other side of the aisle, not most of them, but too many of them. It's not that they don't like ethanol and they don't like biodiesel, they don't like corn farmers. And two, unless, I mean, far be it for me to, to, to argue, but uh, if anybody thinks a carbon tax isn't getting passed on to the consumer, then they're not paying attention to how this works. Not the least of which we are starting to see increases in prices. We are starting to, I mean, as our global economy wakes up from this year long pandemic, uh, soybean prices are better than they've been in a while, but we, we can wipe all that away with input increases. And if you shut down every pipeline, you're gonna congest rail lines again. If you do, if, if natural gas prices spike and hydrus is gonna go up in price, you can do all the soil management you want and carbon capture you want with green leaves, which I actually agree with. But if you're gonna increase 
increase the cost of every carbon-based input onto an egg, onto an egg a small family farm or an egg producer, you're, we're going to see a, a problem with that. And then not the least of which is when we have these carbon conversations and these environmental conversations, we're going to be right back into the failed policies of waters of the United States, increased regulation, causing people more and more problems on their own property. Boy, there's so much to talk to you about um, in the carbon conversation. Maybe we'll, we'll table that for a moment and come back to it. I guess the most importantly in North Dakota, do you see a plan or do you believe that the Coal Creek Station is going to be surviving and thriving within the next 12, 24 months? And if so, how? Well, I, well, eventually you need a pri I mean, you need a willing buyer and a willing seller. And that's what I'm asking. I mean, do you see somebody out there that's going to do it? Yeah, I mean, I think there are real reasons why that ha we have a potential. And I'll tell you the same thing I, I, I tell, I think, every time. And it's been true so far. I'm more optimistic this week than I was last week. And I haven't uh, been in those positions. Our job as federal uh, people, and I know Senator Kramer talked a little bit about this last night, is to ensure that some weird federal regulation that we can are problem or roadblock is not what ends up being the final stumbling block in a sale if it ends up happening. And so we're always trying to stay in touch and making sure we're aware of what's going on in the regulatory environment that can either help incentivize a sale or make sure we work on any problems to it. Let's go back to the carbon situation, because one of the things that Dr. Lardy said last night is, I said, so are you suggesting that North Dakota could actually lead in this carbon credit game? And he's like, absolutely, Chris. And so where are we at with carbon sequestration? Where do you see some innovation happening? What's going on there? Well, obviously we have Project Tundra. Uh, the ethanol plant in Richardson is doing a carbon capture, uh, carbon capture um, project. We have really great, um, I mean, we have EERC. We've got great companies working towards these things all across the state. Um, my concern with the carbon capture and you're dealing with 45Q and all of these is this administration doesn't really want to hear about it. The minute you mention enhanced oil recovery, which is something we could absolutely use our carbon for, which, ha which has two benefits, right? It helps you store the carbon and it also has, helps you produce more oil out of declining oil wells. They seem to push back, or I mean, they seem to get very hands off when that comes up right away. But all of this is based on making it economically viable to produce energy that is that keeps our grids affordable and reliable, which I think now more than ever, people have recognized is a real serious issue moving forward. Speaking of the grid, I guess sort of what are the next steps from the standpoint that there was a utility company down in Texas filing BK. I know I'm sure you've seen the story of the one gentleman that got a $17,000 utility bill. Uh, you know, that company I think has been taken off of ERCOT, um, but it was a co-op that, I mean, by the way, we have to, this co-op that filed bankruptcy was incredibly good financial shape before this happened. So, I mean, and you and I had talked a little bit about this, you know, uh, and by the way, I come from an oil and gas, part of an oil and gas state, but the one problem with natural gas is it's an internationally traded commodity and you can get spot pricing that, I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that natural gas say, I mean, got Texas online faster than anything else, but it also drove up a cost very, very quickly. You know, the two things about nuclear and coal is they cost what they cost and you don't end up running into those types of issues. So we have to have a realistic all of the above uh, process. But I think, I, I mean, I, I haven't heard of anybody else yet in Texas and I hope most people get through it. But I, I mean, that, that just outside of what everybody went through, which I don't want to minimize in any way, shape or form. I mean, people, I mean, people who aren't used to cold weather had to suffer some real, real 
bad days. And I mean, there were people have died because of this, but the companies that provide power out down there are also going to be in significant economic problems. Two more things, sir. Um, Secretary Granholm, the new Secretary of Energy, suggested, yeah, we're going to get this COVID relief bill passed. And then coming up very soon, there's going to be a jobs bill, which is going to include some enhancements to the grid. Would you vote for something like that that's going to say, hey, let's put out a bunch more money, but it's going to improve the reliability of the grid? Well, we'll see what it looks like. I mean, they're eventually going to have. Well, no, I'm serious. I mean, nobody wants to address the permitting problem. Nobody wants to address the fact that it takes so long to get these projects into the ground that it, it, the cost goes up, the access to capital goes down um, and dealing with this. And then we'll see what kind of regulatory environment comes in. You know, I served for two years on the climate crisis committee, and this was a conversation about interreliability, intra-reliability, and, you know, just modernizing the grid and uh, dealing with it. And the problem is, is so, more often than not, my colleagues want to then start putting renewables in a in a favored nation spot on a grid and that's not what grids are designed for right policy can deal with that in other ways and we've done a really good job of messing that up over 20 years but if we're going to harden the grid and it's going to be technology neutral and we're going to allow energy on it as it comes and not turn it into another climate climate crisis crusade and we do it reasonably yeah because i think reliable and affordable power is something that absolutely helps the economy overall Last question, sir. Do you support uh, President Biden's uh, airstrike against the Iranian militia in Syria? And if you do, how does that put America first? Yeah, so I, I always tend to think that more often than not, um, we we react a little quicker on these things than we should. And I said this under President Trump's administration, and I'll say it now. Congress needs to get back in that game and we need to have more authority when it comes to that when we're deploying uh, soldiers or when we're deploying military forces overseas. And I don't mean to bring this into the uh, energy conversation again, but it really does come into the energy conversation. You know how we could really do a good job of not having to worry about a lot of things over there if we maintain our energy independence. We still have our number one ally in Israel, which we want to do everything we can to protect. But if we would just allow American innovation and American companies to produce the energy over here without government interference, I will tell you, we will have a lot less altercations in the Middle East. Congressman, I'll give you the last word. Anything else you want to add or if you want to tell us, hey, Chris, here's what I think we should be looking that's coming down the pipeline or what else would you like to share, sir? Yeah, I think we want to watch on the good side. If we, I mean, I would just say I, there's real bipartisan support to get some um Rural broadband and even ur urban broadband, we've learned over the last year how important that is. I think telehealth permanency is something we're going to see, um, hopefully see a, a broad bipartisan coalition on. And then on the other side, you're going to see, I mean, it's just, we're going to see it. It's going to be immigration and guns and those types of issues. And those are all going to run for the next couple of weeks. And it's unfortunate because those are serious issues that need bipartisan solutions. And I don't think we'll see it over here for the next couple of weeks. Well, thank you for the time. We'll have you back in a couple of weeks and do this again and continue to talk about these uh, hot, hot topics. So thank we you. Get, we, get across, we get around the world pretty quick, don't we? <laughs> we do. Man. It's like, bam, 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 which, which I love. That's why I love doing these. So we appreciate the time and the insight. Thanks, Chris.